Good evening and welcome to week two of Rare Book School 1997. Marianne Melkin has been connected with Rare Book School since the beginning, that is to say since 1983 when RBS began in New York City. She formally attended Rare Book School classes in 1983 and in every year thereafter for several years. Since then, she has been one of our principal ambassadors, always here for at least most of the four or five weeks during which we are open for business each summer. Her presence enriches the school. Many of you here will remember or know A.B. Bookman's Weekly, a useful magazine carrying bookseller and other ads for used and rare books wanted and for sale. Marianne Malkin's late husband, Saul Malkin, founded A.B. Bookman and edited it for a generation. The Malkins sold A.B. in the early 1970s, and it continues and prospers to this day, though most persons would agree that its salad days were during the Malkins' tenure as editors and publishers. Bookman's Weekly made its debut in 1948 as the antiquarian Bookman. It was published by the R.R. Bowker Company as a spin-off of the so-called back half of Publishers Weekly. It included dealers' lists of books wanted and a few single copies of books for sale with a front matter consisting of trade news of interest to dealers, collectors, and librarians. And it included a column written by Jacob Blank, editor of Bibliography of American Literature, providing news, musings, and gossip about the trade. In 1994, Marianne Malkin began to support an annual lecture in honor of Saul Malkin's contributions to the antiquarian book trade through his editorship and stewardship of A.B. Bookman's Weekly and elsewhere. Michael Winship gave the first Malkin lecture in bibliography under Bookhart's Press auspices at Columbia University in December 1985, in time for Saul Malkin to congratulate him on his performance, though he was too ill to attend. Indeed, Saul Malkin died in 1986, a few months after Winship delivered the first Malkin lecture. Malkin lectures over the years have included Robert Darnton, Christopher DeHamel, Lucian Goldsmith, Kenneth Rendell, Bernard Rosenthal, Anthony Rhoda, Justin Schiller, Roger Stoddard, G. Thomas Tansel, and Marjorie Wynn. Since moving to Virginia, the lecturers have tended to be members of the antiquarian book trade. The 1997 Saul Malkin Lecturer in Bibliography notably continues this tradition. A graduate of Smith College, Catherine Kais Lieb did graduate work at Columbia University in the 1960s and had various jobs in the publishing industry throughout that decade. I have the misfortune to be four days younger than Catherine Kai's Lieb, and have never been allowed to forget this. <laughs> On one celebrated occasion, she gave a book to the Book Arts Press and dedicated it from four days. We figured that our mothers were reading the same Life magazine in the hospital <laughs> at the time we were born, 1879. <laughs> Kathy Lee began her connection with American Book Prices Current, the annually published book that records the prices 
Roebuck's Fetch at Auction more than 25 years ago, and with her husband, Daniel J. Lieb, who spoke here a few months ago, purchased it from the Columbia University Press in the early 1970s. Under their management, American Book Prices Current, or ABPC as it is universally known, has come to be an indispensably useful tool to antiquarian book dealers, collectors, rare book librarians, and historians of the book alike. She has lectured to the Book Arts Press and Rare Book School audiences on seven occasions before tonight, always to our great profit, and it is a great pleasure to welcome her to this podium tonight. Catherine Price Lee. Thank you, young man. <laughs> It is both a privilege and a delight for me to serve as the 13th Salem Malkin Memorial Lecturer. The beginning of my career with American Book Prices Current dovetailed with the ending of Saul Malkin's as editor of A.B. Bookman's Weekly, but he remained a very strong presence as paterfamilias to the rare book trade. He was everywhere, at lectures, openings, book fairs, ex exhibitions, receptions, dinners, in short, anything that had to do with books. As his body increasingly betrayed him, Marianne made efforts that were nothing short of heroic to keep him in touch with the life they both loved. Saul taught, hectored, invaded, told stories, whatever it took to mold younger people into knowledgeable, hardworking, ethical book people. He had written that, quote, the measure of a bookman is often taken by the number of ABPC volumes he has, and he was determined that the Liebs not make a liar out of him. Saul terrified me. He was so smart, so quick, and so sure. Moreover, it took years before I really understood what this brilliant bookman and equally brilliant mathematician tried to tell me about the book market. The call to give this lecture included an assignment to talk about ABPC, which is something actually I almost never do. There was no point in talking about the history of ABPC or the recent auction market. Nicholas Barker and Roy Davids had written essays for us in celebration of ABPC's 100th anniversary, covering that territory nicely. Then, because we have been doing quite a bit of statistical work in connection with legal actions involving appraisal, I thought that something statistical might be interesting. Statistics in the summer? In the Charlottesville heat, statistics out loud? Fortunately for you, the voice of reason boomed through my head. Accordingly, I decided to confine myself to a handout, which has to do with incidents, not prices. How many times an author or map maker, I'll call them authors even though Joan won't, has sold at auction rather than rather than talking about prices. And I have filled up the sheet of paper with a few other possibly indicative numbers. Disregarding a statistical approach, however, left but one yellow brick road to travel. And now, you poor, unsuspecting people are going to hear the first of two, count them, two quarter centenary lectures on two successive days. For the awful truth is, that the Lieb era at ABPC began in 1972, the founding year of the Book Arts Press. I hope that Terry tomorrow will speak about the importance of the Book Arts Press lectures and open houses in bringing together 
bibliographers, librarians, dealers, archivists, auctioneers, publishers, collectors, printers, printmakers, binders, Christellers, and illustrators. If you listened hard, and I listened for 10 years before I finally lectured, it became an almost cubist experience of bookness, all those points of view and ways of coming to convergence on the book. The level of thinking even exceeded the level of wine drinking. By 1972, although I was an expert encyclopedist and re reference book editor, the last to be trained by the legend legendary William Bridgewater, and although I knew a bit about autographs and manuscripts, I knew even less than bibliography about bibliography than Bellinger knew about the practicalities of printing, this being his cradle period when I recall that he was using stamp pad ink. <laughs> The Book Arts Press lectures and experience certainly furthered my education and sense of book community. My bibliographical education needed to be furthered, and quickly too, for the task facing the Liebs was to rescue ABPC from near extinction. A little bit of history is appropriate here. The book had come to Columbia University Press from the capable hands of Edward Lazar, who had edited ABPC from 1940 through 1965, except when he was a staff sergeant in World War II, and then Colton Storm of the Clements Library at the University of Michigan had substituted for him. Lazar was a fine bibliographical editor, always ex seeking to improve the work. The task he set for himself and future editors was nothing less than this, and it makes me sick every time I read it. This is from the preface to the 1944 volume. To the editors fall the great responsibility of translating the priced records into a single alphabet in harmony with the entries of previous years. Isn't that the most lovely way to talk about name authority work you ever heard? <laughs> anyway, they must have encyclopedic knowledge of the literature of every field and of editions in all their intricate variations. They must have an unerring eye for any slips in the catalog descriptions. They must have at hand a complete bibliographical reference library by which to verify information. That's an arduous charge. And it is no wonder that when Lazar reached his mid-60s, he decided he wanted to stop. So he sold ABPC to Columbia University Press. But by the time negotiations had been completed, American book prices was no longer current. Moreover, a university press with the sorts of procedures and overhead costs that any university press has was not a happy home for ABPC. Edith Hazen did her excellent best for the 1966 to 68 volumes, but received inadequate institutional support and departed for greener pastures. ABPC limped along with its sales drifting down to 1902 levels. It was a sick puppy when we decided to adopt it. I knew something about the autographs and manuscripts section of the book because, after Edith's departure, I would respond to occasional frantic calls from Columbia University Press, usually to the effect of, could you come in and do all the autographs and manuscripts in a month? And I did, twice. Once on a manual typewriter that had no left margin. <laughs> Small wonder that I found myself talking with my husband about how we could rescue ABPC. Dan Lieb, a historian and then a dean at Columbia, was a bookaholic who haunted the many antiquarian bookshops in New York. Moreover, at the time, he had actually attended and bought books at auctions. I had not. In 1972, then, 
with the help of two specialists in 18th century literature and a medical researcher from Rockefeller University who was a graduate of the School of Library Service at Columbia, we plunged in. We produced four volumes in two and a half years, and I only fell off my chair once from fatigue. From this vantage point, I can barely imagine how we did it. Each catalog entry was checked in bibliographic sources, with references written into the catalog. Every entry was typed on a 3 by 5 slip of paper. Electric typewriters were our first innovation. The source was written on each slip. If there were cross-references to be made, they had to be typed on slips and paper-clipped to each entry card. When we finished, we had to put the 30,000 or so slips into alphabetical order, then edit them, and then stamp each slip in red with one of those awful numbering machines. There was no copy of the manuscript. Then we took the whole lot down to Lancaster, Pennsylvania, where Amish people sat at linotype machines and typed like crazy, and we never had the guts to ask why they were allowed to do this, but they did. <laughs> there was one copy of the Mechanicals for camera-ready copy. Early on, the entire book in camera-ready copy was left by a hot-blooded printer's messenger in the Times Square Hot Sheets Pay-by-the-Hour Hotel where he had gone with a prostitute. He couldn't remember exactly where the hotel was. <laughs> so he spent the rest of the day, along with the head of the printing company, ducking in and out of these hotels until we found the mechanicals. The index volumes of ABPC required little typing, but all 140,000 uh, slips had to be re-edited. We used El Marco markers. And they had to go into index form and then be stamped with the infernal numbering machine, this time in blue. After the 1970 through 75 index had been published, we had to make room for the next cycle. So we put the slips into garbage bags and set them out for the garbage man. Heaven only knows what mishap befell our garbage man but the next morning, Lexington Avenue was covered in white. <laughs> a city crew came to clean up the 140,000 slip mess, but some of the slips escaped and went on the subway. At least one traveled from 78th Street to 14th Street, where it was recognized by a friend of ours who gleefully <laughs> sent it home. <laughs> While all this work and mess was going on, we were raising the first of our three children, going to a million book-related events, and I was cramming bibliography. It was a magnificent time, though, for in terms of books, New York in the 1970s seemed to be the Emerald City. Let me try to give those of you who are too young to remember a small sense of what the bookish 70s were like. New York in the early 1970s was absolutely chock-a-block with antiquarian books and dealers on all levels. New York was replete with street-level general antiquarian bookshops. The only general shops left today are the very few which, like Argosy and Strand, own the building that houses the shop. There were plenty of books to buy or sell, and the prices didn't change much. Dealers were so busy that they didn't have the time to reprice the books on their shelves. Libraries had nice, fat book budgets. An extreme case was the oil-rich University of Texas at Austin, which bought so many books that their uncatalogued backlog was larger than some other libraries' collections. At one point, it was rumored to be 200,000 items. In these days, when libraries have little money to buy books, let alone 
antiquarian or rare items. The workings on behalf of Texas of the colorful New York dealer Lou David Feldman, who styled his business the House of LDF, spelled E-L-D-I-E-F-F, -F, but really his initials, must seem the stuff of fiction. He made quite a contrast to the elegance of such dealers as Lucien Goldschmidt, John Fleming, and Hans Krauss, quite possibly by design. And why did he buy books? The up-and-coming baby dealers were people like Fred Schreiber, Felix Oyens, Peter Krauss, Justin Schiller, although children's books were considered by many to be a rather eccentric specialty then. Steve Weissman, and so on. Everybody, dealers, collectors, librarians, auctioneers, leaves, saw each other all the time, at events, at hangouts like Geno's for lunch, everywhere. To this day, I could tell you, and blissfully I won't, which dealer preferred what binding position for the frog on the cover of the celebrated jumping frog of Calaveras County? Or what publishers thought that the Library of Congress cataloging and publication data ruined the look of their books? Discussion ranged far and wide. Appraisal was a different process also. Although IRS regulations even then stated that comparative should be given in establishing values placed on books, most appraisals in that period depended on, and were usually accepted on, the basis of the appraiser's expertise stated at the beginning. I am the great and wonderful Oz, and I say that it is worth X dollars. Worked fairly well most of the time. <laughs> on the rare occasions when it didn't, there was no penalty to the appraiser. New York was definitively the book center of America, but in the auction world, it didn't count for much. Swan Galleries, which was a specialist book house, was on the upswing, raising the quality of its books while it increased the number of its sales from 20 in 1970-71 to 38 in 1974-75. Swan sold books in many fields and had theme sales, children's books, medical books, and the like. Prices were low enough that almost any dealer could buy for stock at almost any auction. Park Burnett, the upper-level auction house in New York, was in decline. Though as a novice, I was affected enough by its glamorous traffics, trappings not to notice that at first. While Swan was holding more and more sales, Park Burnett declined from 19 sales in 1970-71 to 7 in 1974-75. In much of the United States, and thus at Park Burnett, the model for collecting was the English Gentleman's Library, what you would find at a great house in England if the family had been buying all the best books since, say, 1600, but not too recently. Anglophilia was modified by important Americana and American fiction. This model had been the collecting paradigm since the 1890s. The English gentleman, by the way, might buy natural history, illustrated books, not too recent, or medical books, but not history of science, even in England. This last is partly why the irascible American collector Harrison Horblet picked up the remainder of his collection and went home after A to G of his collection had been sold in England. H through Z remained in his home for years until Hans Krauss, who lived next nearby, talked him into selling and immediately sent a, trunk, a truck right to his driveway and was out within an hour. There was a little bit of change in the offerings at Park Burnett, but it usually followed Swan's lead, the prime example being Photographica. In 1970, the prominent dealer Jack Bartfield 
had a set of E.S. Curtis's, the North American Indian, on his shelves that he was unable to sell at $2,000. By 1975, the price had risen to $32,000. By 1977, to $60,000. And by the 1990s, you needed between $300,000 and $600,000 to buy a set. Such was the atmosphere around Parker Net in the 70s that Dan Lieb found it easier not to say that he collected cinema books. He said that he collected Raphael Sabatini. One was outré, the other was acceptably eccentric. The rest of the country came to mind we knew they were out there in California, but they came to mind only on those occasions when dealers from California or Chicago or even New Haven, like Warren Hall, Howell or Kenneth Nebenzahl or Lawrence Witten, came to town. A real shock to the New York trade came at the beginning of the 1974 season, when a blockbuster sale of books and manuscripts was held in Chicago at the Hansel Galleries. The collector... David Gage Joyce, who had died in 1937, was virtually unknown and unremembered. This, by the way, was the sale that brought the manuscript of James Fenimore Cooper's The Pathfinder to the University of Virginia. Waller Barrett bought it for $34,000 and made the gift to the university. London, of course, was the center of the Anglo-American book world. The auction houses there were dealer precincts. Collectors didn't buy in the sale rooms. And even some American dealers routinely gave their bids to be executed by British booksellers for political rather than economic reasons. Prominent English dealers had their invariable seats at the green baize table just in front of the auctioneer. The first time I went to Sotheby's to see John Carter, yeah, the inquiry, taste and text uh, technique and ABC person at Sotheby's there in London, I carried a letter of introduction and that was the proper thing to do. And when the Pierpont Morgan Library sold 29 duplicates in 1971, all of them incunables or early 16th century books, they wouldn't have dreamed of selling them in America. They went to Sotheby's. London had name sales like Phillips, Abbey, Britwell Court, Penrose, Plush, Susan A. Chatsworth, Moston Hall, Sassoon, and Scott. New York had Stockhausen. Then the antiquarian book world in New York began to change for reasons that had as much to do with company practices, taxes, and New York real estate values as it did with the supply of books and manuscripts. It wasn't precisely big news in America when Christie's became a public company in October of 1973. But this action brought crucial change to the auction world. As the English journalist Peter Watson put it, once a company is public, it has much more stringent fiduciary duties than before. Its accounts, and therefore its reputation, are public. Once a company issues stock, its obligations are much more nakedly commercial than before. The auction house traditionally had been the agent of the consigner of goods. That was its job. Now the auction house was becoming a company answerable to the stockholder. Ironically, that fact led to a further confusion of corporate loyalties. Following a 1973 with an 11.4 inflation rate and a 1974 with an inflation rate of 9.13%, with the Dow Jones average going down to 663, Christie's instituted the buyer's premium, a 10% surcharge on the hammer price of each lot. 
What an excellent idea, said Sotheby's and Bottoms. And gradually, the buyer's premium spread while the trade howled. How do you buy for stock if you have to pay a buyer's premium? Also, if an auction house cuts its fee to the consigner to nothing or almost nothing in order to win a collection that another auction house wants, how much of an agent for the consigner is the auction house going to be? It took a number of years for the consequences of corporateness to become fully evident. But the change that started it all came in 1973. Sotheby's then bought Park Burnett, let it sit a bit, and then began to change it. In terms of the book department, Sotheby's sent Anthony Fair from London to oversee the English and European books and manuscripts and gave Thomas Clark command of Americana. In 1977, Christie's opened in New York, bringing the buyer's premium with it, and Sotheby's became a public company. Inevitably, the heads of both book departments were Brits. Stephen Massey of Christie's, an Englishman, and Anthony Fair, a Rhodesian whose ancestors came from England and who had been raised in England. And the Brits, indeed, were better at getting the books and holding the sales. Massey's career at Sotheby's was bracketed by the General Theological Seminary copy of the Gutenberg Bible, sold on April 7, 1978, for $2 million, and his second selling of the Leonardo Notebook, the Codex Lester, on November 11, 1994, for $28 million to Bill Gates. Which, I suppose, is why my Da Vinci screensaver kept interrupting my thought throughout the writing of this talk. <laughs> and what of ABPC during all this upheaval? We began the 1970-71 season with 130 sales in London, New York, Montreal, and Philadelphia. By 1975-76, we were covering 200 sales in New York, Sydney, Paris, Rome, Utrecht, Zurich, Montreal, Baltimore, Chicago, Philadelphia, San Francisco, and Los Angeles, not to mention Monaco. Remember the slips of paper all over Lexington Avenue? Well, it's no wonder that we computerized early on in 1976, even though this move caused the trade to suspect us of devil worship at the very least. <laughs> it was not until we launched the theft reporting service Bam Bam in 1980 that we were forgiven for using the infernal machine. The impetus for our computerization in 1976 was our Bollinger intern, Stephen Paul Davis, and the ESTC pilot, proje pilot project, again Bollinger related. Davis tried encouraging me to rationalize the autograph and manuscript section of the ABPC so that it could be computerized. And when I refused, he dared me to do it, and that worked. <laughs> the ESTC pilot project brought, brought us Larry Buckland and his excellent computer firm, Inferonics. And from ESTC, we discovered ways to use override codes for sorting records when sort keys weren't long enough. In return, we happily gave house room to Jane Douglas when she came from England for the pilot project. And what we began later emerged in one form as the database structure for the Boston Public Library. Next came Mark McCorrison to view our developing input system. And it bloomed into full Mark structure for the American Antiquarian Society's work on the North American Imprints Inventory. Such were the interconnections among book people in New York in the 1970s. The 1980s into the 1990s was a time of great sales and a time of diaspora. The differences between the collections of an earlier era and of those of a later time showed clearly 
in the differences between the Doheny and Martin sales on the one hand and the Garden and Manny sales on the other. Haven O'More, the madman in the Garden sale, bought more than two-thirds of those works in the 1974 through 80 period. And the Manny collection was somehow synthetic, the original books from which the classic comic series was made. Martin, as Gillian Kyles will attest, collected his books over a long period and knew each copy well, not just the idea of it. And Estelle Dohaney's books had been her lifeline, along with her religion, after her husband Edward became a central figure in the Teapot Dome scandal. But the greatest sale in the period was not Dohaney or Martin, or indeed any auction sale. The greatest sale took place during the 1982 through 83 period, and it is known as the coup of the two old men. Who were the two old men? They were the unlikeliest of dealer allies, almost antithetical personalities, Hans P. Krauss and Jacob Zaitlin. <laughs> then, with the combined experience and wisdom of nearly 160 years between them. And what did they sell? The Irene and Peter Ludwig collection of 144 fine medieval and 16th century manuscripts. The two old men sold the Ludwig collection to the J. Paul Getty Museum for somewhere between 30 and 40 million dollars. Krauss in New York had the Ludwig end of it, and Zaitlin in California had a close and long-term relationship with Franklin Murphy, the former Los Angeles Times publisher and chancellor of the University of California, who among other things was a highly influential Getty trustee. Ludwig who made his money by controlling much of the world's chocolate market, got the money he wanted for other artistic pursuits. The Getty, in one fell swoop, managed to plug a big hole in its collection between classical antiquities and the beginnings of Western European painting, and the two old men showed everybody how to work both internationally and bi-coastally while benefiting themselves and the scholarly world. About that time, I finally showed that I had come to understand what Saul Malkin had been talking about a decade before. In celebration of the birth of Bloomsbury Book Auctions in London, and please forgive me for quoting myself, I wrote, We hope that their guess about the market is correct, for we want to see rich and varied auctions of all kinds of books, from the rare and wondrous through reading and reference to cult and civil to downgrade name sales in favor of what he called bread and butter sales. As we've gotten older, we've come to realize that without that bread and butter, there is no way to keep it continuing, to bring along a new generation of dealers, collectors, book lovers, and hoarders. And so hooray for low rents and efficiencies and for creativity at any auction house that allows a wide variety of books to be sold. Saul was right, but I was only partly right. What I missed, I now think, were, one, the inevitability of what happens once the corporate paradigm is embraced. Two, the effects of increased regulation. Three, the dwindling of the New York book community. And four, the upside of regionalization. Once Sotheby's and Christie's became real corporations, the next two decades became inevitable. The bottom-lining terrorist accountants reigned and comparatively few books and manuscripts could qualify for sale under their minimum lot value standards. Why have a bunch of book sales when you can sell a couple of paintings and make the same amount? Big tickets only, please. However, 
With the expensive catalogs and big ticket items, you do get Christopher DeHamel, Felix Oyens, and Paul Needham. A small example here. Did you see Needham's note to lot 271 in the Sotheby New York catalog of June 3rd? The book is the sixth edition, 1635, of Shakespeare's Pericles, which certainly has been looked at often enough by bibliographers, but here's Paul. Quote, note, STC misdescribes the edition as quarto with perpendicular chain lines. It's an octavo, printed on sheets twice the size of the pop paper used for standard play quartos. Each choir comprises a half sheet. Inter alia, the 1611 Titus Andronicus, STC 22330, was printed in the same format and sheet size. Now that's cool. That's worth the price of the catalog all by itself. To give you some idea of the place of books and manuscripts in terms of Sotheby's or Christie's today, let us glance at the figures for the first six months of 1997 for Christie's. Books and manuscripts up 19% to 22.3 million. That sounds like a great deal of money until you realize the following. Total turnover in the six-month period for Christie's was 908 million. A single Cezanne portrait from the Loeb collection sold for 23 million. One sale of jade jewelry in Hong Kong, that's a lot of green beady stuff, realized 16.1 million. 75 works of art sold at Christie's in this period for a million dollars or more. Pretty fierce numbers for a period of high taxation and regulation. And at least we in America don't have value-added tax or the sort of capital gain structure that resulted in many, many atlases being broken and sold map by map. Your handout reflects this. A hundred John Speed atlases, a thousand John Speed maps. And the wormholes were always in the same place, so you knew those hadn't been individual maps. But the book market here was also mightily affected for a time by something called the International Plaza Agreement of 1985. It raised the value of the yen, which resulted in many collections being uh, exported just wholesale to Japan. And tax laws affecting the unsold books in publishers' inventories meant that a goodly number of books were dumped onto the remainder market or were destroyed, a double-edged sword for the out-of-print or even the rare book market. Changes in IRS appraisal regulations in 1986 led to changes in donation patterns and relationships with the IRS. I brought with me the comparative section of an archive appraisal very kindly lent me by John Payne, a leading appraiser. This is just the comparative section. It is a far cry from the great and wonderful Oz appraisals of a previous era. Moreover, appraisers are now financially liable for what they say, which has thinned out the field, but has raised the prices of appraisal. This particular market of evaluation also amuses and delights Dan, for its first sentence is, quote, the current market for cinema materials is among the most popular for collectibles in the United States. No more Raphael Sabatini in an age when Swan has held a sale entitled Joan Crawford and the Golden Age of Hollywood. Swan's holding such a sale leads me to another point. For better or worse, the English gentleman's library, though hardly gone, isn't the only model today, as the handout shows. 
Swan still sells a great many books and is opening up sub new subjects as African-American literature and history. But increasingly, New York becoming what it has, Swan is holding more and more sales of posters, prints, and other graphics. The English Gentleman's Library may not be gone, but what is gone is the large and diverse and somewhat self-satisfied community that New York enjoyed in the 1970s and before. High rents, security, the lure of grass, the fax machine and the computer, the closing of the School of Library Service at Columbia, changes in culture, all these have worked together to shrink the number of book people and the number of books in New York City. But decentralization has its advantages. Take, for example, the books from Phyllis Gordon's library that came to Respus here in Charlottesville a couple of years ago. Personal relationships or no, those books simply would not have come here from New York in the 1970s. There would have been a zillion New York de dealers on the doorstep making it so easy, wouldn't have to pack them even, that it would have been irresistible at that time. And what an opportunity Phyllis Gordon's books were for the people here at Rare Book School who understood them and what they meant. And look at the regional auction houses. There are more of them, and they are stronger than ever before. I was speaking with Richard Oinanen, who since 1980 has held auctions in Northampton, Massachusetts, and who is known for such specialties as books on fishing, among others. His first break as an auctioneer was given to him by John Kababian, who worked for H.P. Krauss in New York. Kababian was retired, and he decided to sell his bibliographies and his books on the history of technology. But he decided that his books would be invisible in New York, and so the sales were held in Massachusetts, which seemed so exotic at the time that dealers simply flocked up to the sales. Oinanen, Freeman, Waverly, Baltimore, and others on the East Coast have also developed regional specialties. For instance, Waverly, which is in Baltimore, <coughs> sells a great many Civil War-related books, as does Baltimore Book. Occasional sales of books at places like Dumashell's in Detroit bring in dealers from all over the Midwest and Canada who then hang out at John King's bookstore in Detroit. In earlier times, some of these collections would have been sent to New York, but now they are not. And then there's California. Oh, my. If you will look at your handout one more time, you will see that the California auction houses have had a serious impact on the auction market in the 1990s. Jack London, John Steinbeck, and to a degree, L. Frank Baum, owe much of their increased popularity to Pacific Book Auctions, which sells a great many books of all kinds from all over the country. And have you been following California Book Auctions? On July 16th, they sold, en bloc, a 49-lot collection of books from the library of Mark Twain and his family, many of them annotated, for $200,500. These books had been sold at the Hollywood home of Twain's daughter, Clara Clemens, in 1951, and then had disappeared into storage until now. The collection was purchased by Mark Twain House in Hartford, Connecticut, thus going coast to coast. The July 16th sale at California Book, which ranged from the Federalist in Original Sheep to a Timothy Leary archive, saw every lot reach 150% of its not inconsiderable estimate. In all, 
Regionalism is a very healthy trend indeed. Yes, there are dealers who are just as good as the dealers of earlier times, even if they may decide to live in Narberth, Pennsylvania, or Olive Bridge, New York, or Austin, Texas, or McMinnville, Oregon, or West Palm Beach, Florida. Powell's today is bigger than the Strand, and Powell's is in Portland, Oregon. Yes, there are auction houses out there finding all the books that nobody thinks are available anymore. Yes, there are serious collectors in St. Louis and Anchorage and many other places, collectors who are unknown to the trade at large and to librarians. And yes, ABPC still marches on with the times. The portable computer with an ABPC on CD-ROM disc in it is becoming ubiquitous in shops, at universities, on the road, and at auctions. I wonder what Saul Malkin would think about that. I think he would approve. Thank you. The 1998 Malcolm Lecture will be delivered by Paul Needham. You can ask him all about it uh, in two weeks because he'll come into residence at Rare Book School in week four. Meanwhile, however, I hope that you will join Mrs. Malkin, Catherine Kais Lieb, and other members of this audience for a reception in the first floor West Alderman Staff Lounge not, as the poster says, in the Book Arts Press, but in the staff lounge. And we'll see you there shortly. It seems to have stopped raining. <laughs>